0: hi everyone welcome back to seek first podcast where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture rick brown here take a minute to subscribe to seek first podcast i really appreciate it stick around i think you're going to be encouraged spending time with the lord will be the best part of your day so let's get ready grab your bible prepare your heart and your mind let's roll we're going to be turning to acts chapter 25 and 26 for our message here tonight The Explosive Testimony. God's Spirit has put inside of you the power not only to rescue and redeem your own soul, but Jesus gave the apostles this promise to the church in Acts chapter 1 that but you shall receive the Holy Spirit so that you can be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth... The power of the Spirit is to be a witness for the Lord. And we see in this story, really, the, uh, the epic story. Paul the Apostle shares his testimony many times within the book of Acts, but this one probably, because of the audience and its situation and the invitation that he has to give it, is really a, a, a diamond, if you will, in the passage, in the context. On the 4th of July, just a few weeks ago, I was over in Hollywood in a hotel lobby, and I was engaging with a 20-year-old Jewish young man who was asking me who I was and what was my story. I took the opportunity to uh, launch into my testimony, which is very easy to do. Because you see, I have something unique in my story and you have something unique in your story because no two stories are the same. And nobody can argue with your testimony. Isn't that a cool thing? They might argue with scripture or positions or situations but what they cannot do is argue with your personal experience that God has done in your life. That's why it's so powerful and it's so underutilized in people's lives even my own children who were, grew up as church kids, if there's any church kids here, you grew up in the church. My children both do not remember ever not going to church. They were born, the next Sunday they're dedicated, and they're going to church. They're preacher kids, right? And so they've been in church their entire life. One day, my daughter, who was about maybe uh, 20 at the time, she says, Dad, I don't have a testimony. And I said, you have the best testimony. I said, I wish I had your testimony. Do you want to know how cool your testimony is? She said, really? And I said, let me tell you, ask me, like I'm, I'm going to play you right now. And she's like, you're going to, I said, yeah, I'm going to play you. And somebody's going to ask you, hey, uh, do you have any personal faith or were you grown? did you grow up in the church? Yeah, you know, I grew up in the church and I heard all the Sunday school stories, but I didn't believe in Jesus until I was about nine years old. And then it dawned on me one day when I was nine years old hey, I need to ask Jesus into my heart. I need to pray and receive him. So I went into my dad's office and I tugged on his sleeve and said, Hey, dad. Now, my dad was really engaged in the computer. <laughs> and so I had to ask him two or three times. And I said, Dad, I want to give my life to Jesus. Would you pray with me? And so my dad prayed with me and that day I received Christ and a few weeks later I got baptized and I've been walking with Jesus ever since. And it hasn't been a straight road, it's been up and down and all around but Jesus has changed my life. And she said, when you share my testimony it sounds so cool. (laughs) It's because that which is the most familiar to us feels like it is powerless. And that's a lie from Satan because your personal testimony is the coolest thing you have going. I don't care if you're a church kid or if you're somebody like me. When I share my testimony with people, they say, you needed God. (laughs) They're kind of startled by my life. But the reality is, each one of us have a testimony. In this passage, we see the explosive testimony of a very religious man who was imprisoning and killing Christians, and he thought he was serving God. That was his story. Let's stand. We're going to read from Acts chapter 25. Hopefully you made your way there. We're going to pick it up for the introduction to what the situation is like here in verse 23. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, You see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me both at Jerusalem and here crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable and to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Father, we ask that you would give us understanding hearts and that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might not only receive and understand, but it be inspired and encouraged in our own life to share the simple gospel story of how you rescued our souls and how you changed our lives. Lord, thank you for your goodness and pray that you would bless your people, nourish us now from your word by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. I started off by saying I was with a young Jewish man, and I shared my testimony. And this young Jewish boy was very bold and uh, 20 years old, and he said, well, I'm an atheist. And so uh, as he declared being an atheist, I had the bold opportunity to share how I had come to Christ and not grown up in the church and various things. And it was so sweet because within a matter of Three to five minutes I had shared with him that Jesus loved him, died on the cross for his sins, was buried and rose from the dead. And through faith in him, he could have everlasting life. The forgiveness of his sins and spend eternity in heaven with God. And all of it took three minutes, five minutes in that conversation. And you see, because you don't have to, people fumble around because they're worried about, well, I don't know enough of the Bible. I don't know, I can't defend this position or I can't, you don't have to defend squat. You just got to share what Jesus did in your life. You know, when a witness gets up on the witness stand, what is he asked to do? What did you see? What did you hear? Just declare that, and you're going to be in great shape. Now, in this story, there is Festus who's just taking over for Felix. Now, Paul is a political prisoner, he's been unjustly in prison, no bail for two years because they wanted to do a favor for the Jews and because Felix was waiting to be bribed so that Paul could get out. Paul didn't have the money nor probably the inclination to bribe him. He was waiting for the Lord to deliver him somehow. Now, in the process of time, Felix moved on to a new post. Festus comes in. Festus knows nothing. He's very unfamiliar with the Jewish ways. And King Agrippa II has come to town with his... uh, Significant other, who is Bernice, who is actually his sister. So they're in an incestuous relationship. This is a very colorful crowd. And he is the last of the Herods. So it's, it, it's really this incredible story that Paul the Apostle has the last opportunity at the last Herod to share the gospel. Because his great-grandfather was the one that killed all the baby, male children under the age of two in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. His father was the one that beheaded John the Baptist, or yes, no, his grandfather. So his great-grandfather killed all the children in Bethlehem. His grandfather had John the Baptist's head chopped off and put on a platter for his uh, wife or significant other, and then his father was the one that had James the apostle killed, the very first of the 12 apostles to be executed in the book of Acts chapter 12, and then Here he is, Agrippa II, and he's going to stand in judgment to discern. Now, this is not a trial to set Paul free. It is a hearing so that Paul, after he hears Paul, that Festus has something to write. Because if you want to go all the way to the Supreme Court in the Roman culture, you appeal to Caesar. Caesar is the highest court. And so he was going to Rome to stand before Caesar. First, you have to really see this incredible hatred that the Jews had of Paul the Apostle. It tells us, as we see Festus's request, that the whole assembly of the Jews, it tells us in verse 24, petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. They hated Paul so much because he had taken the gospel to the Gentiles and because he kept preaching Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the resurrected Lord. Now his request to Agrippa is for him to hear the story and then to give him a paragraph to write to Caesar so that when he sends him, he doesn't look like an imbecile or a terrible uh, procurator over the area of Judea. Now Paul's opportunity here has come from many years. Most believe at this point 25 to 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he's been serving the Lord for 25 years or so. He's been preaching everywhere he goes fearlessly, and everywhere he goes, he goes into town, he preaches in the synagogues, they kick him out, he goes to the Gentiles, and there's a huge revival that happens, and then there's a riot, and he's either beat up, or thrown out of town, or he runs away at midnight, or he's let down in a basket outside the walls of Damascus because the king of Damascus wanted to kill him. Because Paul was very bold. He would tell them straight up, the gods that you worship, they're not gods. They're idols. The true and living God sent his son. And so they hated his message of truth. We live in a culture that is so intolerant of truth, they want to counsel, cancel you. But in old school, they, they cancel you by killing you or throwing you in jail or beating you, whatever it might be. You know, even in our own team, our own staff member uh, just two weeks ago was sharing with a friend that uh, is not, he, he's always hostile towards the gospel. But in a vulnerable minute, a moment, uh, this staff member on our team here, Um, thought this was an opportunity to share about Jesus. So he shared about Jesus, and the guy came and knocked him out, punched him twice in the face and knocked him to the ground. This was two weeks ago at the guy's house. And so, uh, you know, he wanted to shut him up. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. And so even one of our own team members got beat up two weeks ago from someone he considers a friend. It doesn't always go that way. When's the last time you got beat up for Jesus, right? I don't have any scars for Jesus. The closest I w- <laughs> about got beat up was I was on my knees at a construction site because I was a tile setter and I was sharing the gospel with this. Um, he hung the uh, suspended ceilings and he was up on this scaffolding and he was a big jacked buff guy and I'd been telling him and his mate uh, Bible stories all week long because only the three of us were working in this certain area of the building, and I, I shared the gospel with him point blank, and he came flying off the scaffold, and I was on my knees with my uh, little trowel, my pointer, and I just closed my eyes because I knew he was going to kick me right in the face, and he came all the way up. <laughs> he, it was a one of those moments that you're not sure if you're going to mess your pants or not, right? But. He he diverted, and I didn't get beat up that day. But Paul's opportunity for him to speak, Paul engages the audience. These are a couple of preacher tips. You may not be a preacher, but this is, think about it, it says that there's Festus. He's the governor of the area of Judea. There's King Agrippa. There is the commanders and the prominent men and they come in with great pomp. They're in an auditorium. Imagine filling up the uh, Thousand Oaks uh, Civic Auditorium, and it's packed with people, and now Paul the Apostle gets the microphone, and he gets the stage. It's that kind of very august or uh, incredible crowd. It's the who's who, and here's this little Jewish preacher, (laughs) been in jail, jailbird for the last two years, totally flat broke, and they've come, to evaluate his message. And Paul stretches out his hands in his opportunity here in verse one, and he addresses and answers for himself, and he comes with an excitement. He said, I think myself happy today. (laughs) Usually I have to travel a lot of miles to speak to this many people. You guys have all come right here. I don't even have to get on a boat. Here's this opportunity, and he's very happy to speak specifically with Agrippa because Agrippa was expert in all things Jewish both Herod the Great, and then the next Herod, and then Agrippa, and all the way down the line. The Herods were the descendants of Esau. They were pagan people that none of them ever believed. As a matter of fact, Herod, King Herod, during Jesus' day that chopped off the head of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, when he was brought before Herod, Jesus would not speak one word to him. Herod was the only person that Jesus, when he was in his presence and was asked to interact, Jesus had nada, zilch to say. Now that's a scary thing when you went so far, Jesus stops talking to you. But that's where that Herod was. And that was this Agrippa's grandfather. He also does something that's very important. He begs them to be patient with his preaching because he's got some truth to unpack, so don't get restless, don't, un, don't you know, You know what it means when a pastor takes off his watch and puts it on the podium? Absolutely nothing. That's what it means. But all of this comes about that you're going to have opportunities to share it, be it at work, at the coffee shop, with a friend, wherever it might be, as I was just a couple of weeks ago in the lobby of a hotel sharing with an atheist Jewish guy. This is Peter's encouragement to all of us, this is addressed to all believers. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. There are really two qualities. Well, I, I should say three. Be ready when somebody asks you what's different about you or what's your story. And then do it with humility and respectfulness. And Paul does that through this whole story. Peter gives us that little outline in one verse, how to interact with others and to encourage us to be ready in season and out of season because you never know when God's gonna give you that opportunity to share with someone. He goes into his story now. This is his explosive testimony. First is, he was a church kid in the Jewish sense. In verse four, my manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, All the Jews know, they knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Just by saying Pharisee, immediately Agrippa knows who he is. They are the strictest Jewish sect. The word Pharisee means the separated ones. They were... (laughs) Very self-righteous individuals that separate. When they walked through a market, lest their robes even touched a Gentile, they would wrap their robes tightly around them. They didn't even want to be defiled by other people's clothes. They were the strictest, most self-righteous individuals that wanted to, in detail, obey every jot and tittle of the law. And that's who Paul was. That's what he grew up in. And he grew up, Not it doesn't tell us in this passage, but another one, at the feet of the most respected, renowned teacher in Jerusalem, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was his mentor and his teacher, and he excelled. He excelled everybody, according to another passage that he talks about, everybody that was in his classes. He was the most zealous individual for God that you could ever meet. And then we see not only his childhood, but the reason he's in this mess is because of a hope that was given to God's people and that now has come to pass and Paul is declaring. He uses the word hope three times in these two verses and says, now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? What is the hope? That God is going to bring a savior that's going to conquer sin and death and rise from the dead. So he says, this is the stumbling block. This is what Paul the Apostle says. To the Jews, Jesus is a stumbling block. To the Greeks, he's foolishness. Because they just don't get it. Because if you've ever seen a dead person and death reigns, right, rules and reigns, doing funerals, being impacted by death in a culture that is primitive and without modern medicine, the lifespan being relatively short... Death is an everyday thing. I remember being in India and we were ministering in India and the villagers in India were supposed to join us for this uh, group, a community of five different churches were coming together and we were having this service. But one of the churches was delayed by two hours because somebody in their congregation died that morning and in India, you'd bury them that day. As soon as they die, you go bury them that day. There's no embalming, there's none, there's none, none of that. Death is a very real thing. It's not done by others. It, the, the families take them out and bury them. Just in the last two months, I've had the boxes of ashes of four of my loved ones in my hands of death in the last two months. And one of the most awkward experience I've ever had, and I've been a pastor for 32 years, but this is an ironic thing. Though being a pastor for 32 years, I have never spread ashes personally. I'm, a, I'm overseeing a service where people do those things, right? And and yet now it's an opportunity that my stepdad had a plan for my mom's burial and my brother's ashes and his son's ashes, my stepbrother. So both my brother and my stepbrother, my brother 53, my stepbrother 50 had died and their ashes were at the house. And when my mom died, there's three boxes of ashes, So my stepdad had a plan to go down to this, after the the, uh, funeral home, and we did the service, we go down to this creek, it's a very pretty place that my mom and him had planned on pouring out their ashes. Well, it was his thing, and I thought he was going to take care of it, but at the last minute he says, Rick, you do it. So I've got 30 people behind me on this creek creek uh, bank, and I've got these bags of ashes. Now, I've never done this. Now, there's flowing water. It's a beautiful crystal spring. It's these springs that from where we're from, literally, you can put your face in the water and drink it. And so uh, I was just going to dump the ashes in the water, but there's some issue. Is there any environment? I don't know what the issue There's some issue. Like, you can't do it. It's illegal. And I'm thinking to myself, because I, I was not a part of this part of the service, and I got throw, thrown into it at the last minute. So I get ready to pour the ashes into the water, which seems the thing that I want to do because they'll float away. I don't want to just pour them on the bare ground and watch the wind blow them around, right? And so when I go to pour pour them in the water, everybody says, no, you can't pour them in the water. 30 people. 30 people, I got a bag of ashes, and I'm like, oh, snap, what do I do now? And they said, pour them all over the rock. I'm like, there's a big rock there. And everybody started directing, pour it in that crack, pour it over there, pour it. <laughs> now, on one hand, afterwards the situation was so ridiculous and embarrassing, it was comical. On the other hand, I was totally grief stricken because this is my mom. And she's just a bag of ashes. And so. I'm trying to process all this, and I pour out the ashes, and then I have another, and then this is the thing, I forget, you know, they have this new technology where you take a handful of the ashes, and you send it to this company, and they compress it, and they make like a imitation diamond thing, and, and two of the family members were going to have bracelets or diamonds made from it, not actual diamonds, stone, you know, kind of fake thing. And they were going to wear it as a memorial. So I dump all the ashes out. And they're like, oh, no, you needed to save some. Pick some back up and put them back in the bag. It just got worse. Like it went from bad to worse. And so now part of me is like, sorry, Mom. I'm putting my mom back in the bag. And then I have my brother to pour out. And then I have my stepbrother to pour out. So, I mean, there's like, this is a pile of ashes. I mean, there's three bags worth of people on the rocks. And the whole thing just went So sort of, I just, I couldn't take it. I just, I grabbed the plastic sacks and I just trudged up the hill and to walk out of the place. And I turned around and we had all of our family there. So there's all of our nieces and nephews here that are all little and they're stomping in the ashes and jumping from one pile of rocks to the other and the ro- the ashes are going everywhere fast forward four weeks later I my step another stepdad died because my mom's been married four times I was responsible for him and we did his ashes but he was a bull rider so we poured his ashes out in front of the buck and shoots at a arena in the mud I can't tell you, after the last couple of months, I never want to see a bag of ashes for the rest of my life. And if I do, I definitely am not going to be in charge of pouring them out. And if I am going to go somewhere, I am going to pour them in the water and go to jail if I have to, because that's what, it seemed better than people stomping through them and the, you know. So when Paul, the apostle, talks about the resurrection, let me tell you, I'm pretty excited about that. Because the reality of death, when it's stacked up, of the people you love, and they're reduced to a pile of ashes, or they're put in a box on the ground, basically cremation does what 100 years is going to do in the ground, right? I mean, so when Paul says, why should it be incredible for you, Agrippa, to believe in the resurrection of the dead. Because as far as everybody knows that doesn't know the hope that had been given to Israel, all the Old Testament scriptures point to the reality of going to heaven or hell. There is going to be a life after this life and that this reality that Jesus is going to be the first to rise from the dead. And the comfort that I have for both my brother and my mother and my stepdad that died, they all knew Jesus and I know I'm gonna see him again. So we're just separated by a little time, right? They're in eternity, so it's gonna seem like nothing. But I'm just, be- I'm, I'm almost 60, so I'm right behind him. So the hope that we have, he uses the word hope th- three times. Let me just ask you, you see that heaven is not just a destination, you guys. It's a motivation in your life. It's a motivation here and now. We are going to live forever and be resurrected, forgiven of our sins and resurrected and spend eternity with God. Now, it's this thing that Paul has asked for patience to unpack to Agrippa because this is mind-blowing stuff that no, that the pagan world has never heard. They don't believe, they don't have the hope of the promises of the Old Testament scriptures like the Jews and the 12 tribes of Israel. But it, this was Paul's hope. And then we see Paul's oppression because at one time he thought he must do a lot of damage to the gospel in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison and having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme being exceedingly, check this out, Being exceedingly enraged against them persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul the Apostle hated this new Christian sect and he was going to destroy it and believed that he was serving God in the process. His zeal, he was dragging people off to jail. He caused them to blaspheme by threatening their lives so that they would say, no, Jesus is not Lord. That's what he means by saying that to blaspheme, to recant of your faith in the Lord or die And he even was so motivated, it wasn't enough for him to attack every Christian in Jerusalem. He was gonna take this show on the road and go to Damascus and then that's where Jesus meets him, and we see his conversion in verse twelve. While thus occupied, I was I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. at midday, O King, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad." So I said, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting." Now, this may be such a well-worn story to you, but think about how awesome it is. right? You're just cruising down the road and a bright light brighter than the sun knocks you and your buddies to the ground. And then a voice starts speaking to you from heaven, <laughs> and he knows your name. "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See like, Who are you? <laughs> I'm Jesus of Nazareth. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads are those sharp points that farmers would use to motivate their cattle to go where they wanted them to go. Or if they're plowing anything, when they want to kick back against it, they would learn real quick that the sharpness, they don't want to kick against that. And God had been prodding Paul the Apostle. He heard the gospel preached through Stephen as he watched his clothes and saw him be stoned to death and voted, that means he was a part of the Sanhedrin. You can't cast your vote unless you're one of the 70 of the Sanhedrin. And Paul, as a young man, was a part of that. It appears because he could cast a vote. All of this being said, Jesus meets him, knocks him down, bright light, and we know also he's now blind. He can't see for three days, total darkness. And in this process, He says, I am Jesus. Jesus introduces himself to him in the most dramatic fashion. Now, I doubt if any of your testimonies are quite that dramatic. Bright lights and all. And lots of friends with you on the road. But then we see the mission. And this is so cool. Because now we see not only his conversion, but his mission But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And this is the mission. To open their eyes, because unsaved people are spiritually blind, in order to turn them from darkness to light, Unsaved people live in spiritual darkness, like the lights are turned off, and his mission is to bring them into the light. From the power of Satan to God, they are under the power and dominance of satanic forces. As he says to the Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience that they're under his power, we were under his power and control before we came to Christ, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now this changes the whole way that you look at your unsaved friends, family members, neighbors, teammates, classmates, whoever it is, to understand because have you ever just been frustrated as you've tried to share with people? And you're like, they just don't get it. They just they seem oblivious. There's this blank look. Well, that's exactly how Jesus describes people. Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he said, If our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is because the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. The God of this age has blinded their minds. So the first step in spiritual warfare for someone I love and I want to share the gospel with, I begin to pray that the Lord will rebuke the devil who has blinded their minds so that as I present the gospel, they'll actually, boom, the lights will go on. They'll actually understand because they are blind spiritually. And it gives you much more compassion for them. This week I was praying for Governor Newsom. President Biden and Kamala Harris and Congress. And I was so mindful of this passage that I'm like, "There's a bunch of blind people leading our nation. They're blind. Now, my stepdad was 100% blind, and so I have tremendous uh, compassion for blind people. I had to lead him. I mean, if you have anybody in your life that's blind, there's a methodology by which you take care of them and how they hold your elbow and how you travel around and what you look for and what you do. And (laughs) my stepdad had lived with Tammy and I for about six months. We came to the door, and I've got him on my left elbow. You know, when you're going upstairs, it's up up, up, down, 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 this, you're you're talking them all the way through it. So I go to open the living room door, and it bumps into the the couch because Tammy's doing her weekly rearranging of the furniture. And so I bump the door, and I say, hey, love, we can't get in the house. What are you doing? She said, I'm rearranging the furniture, and Tony's on my elbow, and Tony goes, And I said, what? He goes, my shins have just healed up from last week, her moving the furniture, because as a blind guy, right, you, you run into everything until you figure where it's at. And we were totally abusing Tony and we didn't even realize it. He was like, my, my shins are just healing up. So we didn't rearrange the furniture anymore while he was with us. Him and I were doing the dishes, and I was washing, and he likes to dry. So I'm washing and I'm handing it to him. He's got his towel, you know, whatever you hand him, he's just dry. But I reach in front, once again, you're not thinking, you're, you're used to being with people that can see. And so I reach in front of him and I open the cupboard door to get something and it's standing straight out and he just goes, you know. I just felt at every turn this, I'm like, well we thought we were gonna help you by having you live with us but I think this is going to be a little bit brutal. You're going to have lots of, it's like having a two-year-old, he's got all these bruises all over his body from going through life, figuring out Braille at Rick Brown's house. Anyway, the reality is, is that these people are blind. They live in darkness. And so praying for them that The only prayer that I have for them, the Lord tells us to pray for kings and those who are in authority so that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives. Our lives are not very peaceful because the blind people are in charge, (laughs) right? And so I'm praying, Lord, break into their world. The devil has blinded their minds that they believe killing these babies is the most important thing on their agenda, their child sacrifice. You can only... You can only explain that by somebody being totally blind to the reality that that's a life. And so I'm praying, Lord, break into their world, praying these things. Turn them from, open their eyes, bring them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might be forgiven of their sins and they might enjoy the inheritance, those who are sanctified by faith in me. We have this incredible heavenly inheritance Well, moving on, Paul's obedience to this vision, he wants Agrippa to know. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance." So his message, as he would come, he would say, hey, you need to change your mind. That's what repentance means. Change your mind, which changes your direction, so then you're ch- turning to God. And do works befitting repentance, meaning that there should be fruitfulness. There should be a change in your life that comes from repentance. That's the fruit of repentance and works befitting repentance. My lifestyle is now different than it used to be. For these reasons, the Jew seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. The Jews tried to kill me because I was telling people they need to change their mind and turn to Jesus. Turn away from their sin and trust in God. And this is a message that the Jews did not want to hear. They just wanted to stick to that which was old and familiar to them. Which is all the law. But the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law is just a revelation. People tell me. Well, you know, I, you know, if they're not believers, well, I just keep the Ten Commandments. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't even know me. How dare you say I don't keep the Ten Commandments? So I said, you're a human, right? You don't keep the Ten Commandments. I said, first of all, there's to be no, uh, you know, no other God before. The- Is the Lord the most passionate thing in your life? Um, no. Well, I said, you didn't even get out of the gate on number one. <laughs> right? <laughs> You ever lied about someone? Well, of course I have, you know, just a little white. Yeah, you're a liar. You ever look at a woman to lust after her? Well, I'm a man now, aren't I? There you go. You're a liar and adulterer. So we're not even getting through the list, bro. Right? So the Ten Commandments is the ideal of what a person, and when I look at every one of them, I go, that's right. That's what Paul the Apostle says, is the law bad because it couldn't, no. The law's good. I look at it and go, amen, I wish I could live that, but I'm in this fallen nature. And what it does is it reveals to me my need for what? A savior. Since I've broken the law, I need somebody to rescue me. I need an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's like John writing to the, in 1 John chapter 2, my little children, I write to you that you do not sin, but if you do sin, when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who has died for your sins. Not only for yours, but all the sins of the world. See, this ministry, he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, and I got that heavenly vision 30 years ago, and I've been walking with Jesus, declaring that vision to anybody that will listen. I was just thinking earlier today that from the time the Lord saved me in February of 84 just these 38 years of walking with Jesus and him calling me at the age of 24 to preach the gospel and to teach the word of God. And so often as Paul said I'm not disobey I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision that which God has put in our hearts we We want to do it. And you leave the results up to God. I don't know how many people that I've baptized and have gotten saved and all the ministry that's taken place in my life. But on your best day, you feel like, you know know when your grandkids want to, those who are older, when your grandkids want to help with something, part of you pauses before you say yes because you know it's going to take twice as long with them helping. Right, you could just go get it done. But when you got the four-year-old next to you, it's like handing you the screwdriver. It slows everything. That's the way I feel in ministry. I'm like the four-year-old, like, can I help? I want to help Jesus. <laughs> I want to I be faithful and preach the gospel. Because at the end of the day, the only thing you're really doing is making yourself available. And 90% of ministry is just showing up and being who God wants you to be. And Paul the Apostle lays this out in such a way that he wanted Agrippa to know that not only did he once fight the gospel, but then he was converted by Jesus and now he's been obedient to the gospel and this is his closing moment. He's gonna go for the jugular right now because it's just like in sales, you have to have a good close. (laughs) In the gospel, it's like, hey, you're here tonight and you don't believe in Jesus? This is Paul's close, verse 34. Having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing... both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. This was the promise from the Old Testament, that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That's it, that's the message. Boom. And at that moment, they sense the pressure because once you've heard the gospel clearly and now it's been delivered to you for you to respond. I remember being struck by that at the age of 13. I'd go to church every now and then with my grandparents when I was little, but I never got any. And that, people would ask me about church. I'd go, I don't get it. Something about Jesus in the Bible, I don't get it. It was whatever. But on that day at the age of 13, when the preacher explained it crystal clear and it went home, basically saying exactly this, Jesus suffered for me, died on the cross and rose from the dead. What are you gonna do about it? Because one day, if you hear this message here tonight whether it's across live stream or here in this room you will never ever 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 be able to say you did not hear about Jesus ever and you are accountable for what you know and in that reality when that closing pressure comes check out Festus's response now Paul the apostle is speaking to the whole auditorium, and he's speaking to the prominent men of the city. He's speaking to all the commanders of the military, and he's speaking by the invitation of Festus, but he's really been talking to Agrippa, one man. But Festus, who had invited Agrippa for this message, he just explodes. He can't take it. And you see this all the way through Paul's ministry. Paul can never finish a sermon without somebody interrupting. (laughs) He can't get all the way through it. And Festus says, as he turns thus, now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself, much learning is driving you mad. You are a crazy person. That's his charge. Now, how do you respond to that charge? You're a nut. You're delusional, you're a psycho, you're one of those Bible thumpers, you're one of those Jesus freaks, I've been called all the names, whatever you you think you can throw, I've been called all those names. How do you respond? I love this response of Paul. He he holds it together so well. Now he doesn't always hold it together that well because when the chief priest, when he was in Jerusalem, had the guards smack him in the mouth, Paul the Apostle responded after getting punched in the mouth. He said, God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. I'm like, there you go, Paul. That sounds like something I would do right there. But here he responds. He doesn't get busted in the chops, though. In verse 25, he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. These are truth, and they're reasonable. For the king before whom I speak also speak freely knows these things. And I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner, meaning that Agrippa was in a great perch, being in Judea, through the years of Jesus' ministry, and through all of this stuff that happened, he heard about Jesus of Nazareth, about his miracles, about his death, about his supposed resurrection, about all of these things, and Paul diverts from Festus trying to interrupt at this moment and he brings it right back to Festus, uh, excuse me, right back to Agrippa and says, I know none of these things escape. And and he tells him here in in such incredible terms. Now he turns it to Agrippa himself. He takes Festus, so to speak, out of the conversation in verse 27. We see Agrippa's rejection. So so first you see Festus. Festus' rejection of Jesus in the gospel. Now we're gonna see Agrippa's rejection of Jesus in the gospel. Verse 27, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. <laughs> That's pushing it home right there, Right? Do you believe the prophets? I know you believe the prophets. You are steeped in Judaism. You know all about the the Old Testament prophets. This Agrippa was responsible for the position of the high priest being put into their position from the Roman government. And so he responds in verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these change. Agrippa (laughs) says you almost persuade. It's not like you almost persuade. No, it's not like that. It's much harder than that. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. You think I'm going to become a Christian in your short little sermon here? Who do you think you are? And he stands up and walks out of the room. And when he stands, Festus stands and everybody stands and everybody marches out. Sermon over. Church is over. But in this reality, do you know that every single person in that auditorium heard the gospel? From the day that Jesus met Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus, he told him he was going to stand before kings and governors and those who were in authority. He also told him how much he was going to suffer for his namesake. And he has suffered more than any other apostolic story that we have in the New Testament. Because he has a long list that he shares with us in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Paul the Apostle was destined to stand before kings and governors and to preach the gospel. And to share those truths. I don't know if you've ever re- read the story just, just as I am, Billy Graham's biography, but he had spoken and shared with every single American president following World War II for 60 years, and he had the opportunity to share the gospel. In that book, he has the opportunity to be with Winston Churchill post-World War II And Winston Churchill has uh, the Duke of Windsor out in the waiting room telling him to wait longer so that he can hear about the gospel. Because you see, Churchill was a churchman, religious in the, the British sense, but he wanted to make sure that he understood the gospel. So Billy Graham shared the gospel with him. When Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, was on his deathbed with oxygen on his face Billy Graham went into his hospital room and he was raised as a Quaker, but Billy Graham shared the gospel with him and said, you know, Mr. President, do you know where you're going? And he said, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. And and Eisenhower rehearsed the gospel, you know, if I believe in Jesus that died on the cross for my sins, right? And Billy just confirmed to him, yes, that, that is the message that you need to believe. You see, throughout history, there's people that, Their actual platform is kings and governors and those who are authority. But most of us are not Billy Graham, right? I'm just sharing with a Jewish kid in the hotel lobby. I'm sharing with my friends on the construction site. I'm sharing with the people that God puts along my path. You see, each one of us, do you know that you personally are in a unique circle of impact with people around you that nobody else is going to reach. I'm not going to reach them. Rob's not going to reach them. Because they might not come to church, but they have a relationship with you. They know you. You go to walk together at the park on Thursdays or whatever you do. And when the opportunity comes up, you have the chance to do exactly what Paul the Apostle is doing on a big stage, but in a one-on-one way. Now, if you're faithful with little, God oftentimes entrusts you with more. But Paul the Apostle's passion was so strong when Agrippa rejects Jesus and Festus rejects Jesus and everybody in the auditorium stands up apparently following the leadership of rejecting Jesus. He said, I wish all of you were just like me, forgiven of your sins, on your way to heaven, and a lover of Jesus except for these chains that are hanging on my hands. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. don't want you to be handcuffed. But I wish you would have the gospel, that you would know that you would come from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and that you would discover the inheritance that you have in a relationship with the Lord. Now, obviously, this whole hearing was to get the assessment from a Jewish professional that had been in the region, a politician for a very long time, about this man's condition. It tells us in verse 30, when he had said these things, the king stood as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Caesar which is a nuance of the Roman law that I'm not familiar with, but once you appeal to Caesar, I guess you're locked and loaded into the program to go to their version of the Supreme Court, and there was no getting out of it. He couldn't release him now. But the only reason they hung on to him for two years was to either get a bribe, to get him out, or to continue to do a political favor for the Jews. You know, times have not really changed. I don't know if you've been following the political scene of January 6th hearings and having people being charged that, you know, there was a number of foolish people, those who did property damage, those who broke into things, those who forcibly tried to get in, obviously should have repercussions for and and fines or whatever penalties that the law sees fit. But for many of the people that just went in because the doors were open, and in some cases, the actual Capitol Police were opening the doors, and they just thought, because the Capitol's a large place. I was on the sidewalk right next to the Capitol when the couple's phone um, went ding next to me, and they looked at a headline that said, somebody's breached the Capitol. Now, I had been at January 6th there all day long had I been there the day before. I was in the crowd, we peacefully marched there. The whole environment was peaceful. Trump had told people, hey, let your voice be known in a peaceful way, which meant just to stand there and by simple physical representation that there would be a a desire for Congress to reevaluate some of the fraud charges about voting. Now, on the front of the Capitol, we could not see anybody breaching the, the building. But I knew as soon as that went on and somebody, they said the breach, you got to get out of Dodge. I grew up on the streets. I know the cops are coming. <laughs> right. So I fled to the uh, uh, subway, which is not far from there. Uh, The train station, and I got down there hoping to get a train to get out because i know they're going to lock down the city. It's going to go crazy. And I got down there, and they shut all the trains down, and SWAT came down into there. And I'm like, ooh, not getting out this way. So back up the stairs, I had to get an Uber. I escaped January 6th through an Uber driver (laughs) taking me back out because Tammy and I were staying with Congressman Bob McEwen and Liz out at their place and, and, and their home in the suburbs. But it's amazing to me right now what is, what is happening and how the political environment of this and what's going on. There's nothing new under the sun, right, uh, to, to push this narrative forward. But don't think, I mean, Paul the Apostle unjustly was in jail for two years, no bail, nothing. And, and they just kept wanting to, basically the Jews wanted to execute him because he was preaching the gospel. In this life, when we stand for Jesus, as Paul does here, and as you share the gospel, you might lose your job. You might lose some friends. You might get kicked off of the, uh, the basketball team, whatever it might be. But this, this week was a great uh, decision in a uh, Texas federal court. A woman was fired from the Southwest. She was a uh, flight attendant. And because she, on, on her own, so, on her personal social media, she was pro-life. So they, Southwest fired her for being pro-life on her social media as an employee. She just won $5 million from Southwest and won for uh, just, there's this crazy thing called a constitution and free speech. And I know it's a novel idea to a lot of people but it's been around for a long time, and so we got to knock the dust off and believe those things. But if I'm going to go to jail, if I'm going to suffer, if I'm going to take a beating, I'd rather do it for loving Jesus and following Jesus and, uh, and having some scars for Jesus. And Paul the Apostle is such a great example of this and I close with this because I want you to know, just because you have this explosive power of the spirit inside of you to share a testimony, your job is to faithfully share it. Where it goes from there, you have no clue. You have no idea. That person might get saved. You might have planted a seed. You might have watered a seed. You might, they might, you might harvest it. Or like our teammate here two weeks ago, or you might get knocked out. Right? All those things are possible. Because Jesus said, if you love me, basically, you know, the world's going to hate that message of repentance and faith in Jesus. Because we're basically calling them out that you got to get right with God. And just in your own simple goodness, you're not right with God. You're lost. You're blind. You're under the power of Satan. Don't lead with that in your testimony. I would say, you know, you're under the devil. That probably won't work well. Just in the back of your mind, you know they're in darkness, power of Satan, and quietly you're praying for them that the Lord conquers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting your spirit inside of us. Thank you for these weeks that we have been in the book of Acts to be inspired, Lord, and pray that you would refresh us in your grace to be useful for your kingdom. Lord, I just pray for those right now that have, um, Lord, have been timid, and it's time to step up and to share I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would give all of us in this room opportunities this week to share the love that we have for Jesus, that you would use us in a wonderful and special way to share the hope. As Paul said, the hope, I'm, I'm in trouble because of the hope of God's people to one day experience the resurrection to a heaven where there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears. There's no more pain. And we have an eternity enjoying the love, joy, and peace of our Savior forever. Thank you for that hope, Lord. Strengthen us to be able to share it with others. In Jesus' name, amen. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken If today be the day that I die. Whoa, whoa. 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 And I won't worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I'll keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I Seeking.